Thank you very much, John. Can everybody hear me clearly? Okay. What I'd like to do, I'd like to break my talk into two parts. Uh, I'd like to, first of all, talk about the causes of the present crisis. Uh, and I'd like to speculate on where this is all headed. Now, with regard to the causes, it's very important to understand that who caused this situation is of tremendous importance because it involves assigning blame. Uh, you really have two choices here. You can argue that the West and especially the United States caused the crisis, uh, or you can argue that the Russians caused the crisis. But that means that whoever you argue caused the crisis is responsible for this disaster. And it is important to understand that this is a disaster. Uh, Ukraine has lost Crimea. Uh, it's, in my opinion, going to lose the Donbass. Uh, and the only interesting question to me at this point is whether it's also going to lose more territory uh, in the eastern part of its country. Uh, furthermore, uh, Ukraine's economy is wrecked. Uh, its cities are in the process of being wrecked. Uh, the international economy is going to be badly affected by these events as they go on. Uh, this is going to have terrible consequences, I think, for the Democrats in the fall. Furthermore, it makes it difficult for the United States to pivot out of uh, Europe and pivot to China, where there is a potential threat, which is China. Uh, furthermore, we're driving the Russians into the arms of the Chinese, which makes no sense at all. And all at the same time, we're making Eastern Europe a very unstable region, uh, and therefore forcing us to, if anything, up the ante there. Uh, so this is a disastrous situation. So the question of who caused it and who bears the blame really matters. Now, the conventional wisdom in the United States and in the West more generally uh, is that the Russians are responsible for this. And in particular, Vladimir Putin is responsible. Um, as I'm sure almost all of you know, I don't buy this argument at all, and I haven't bought it for a long time. In my opinion, the West bears primarily, primary responsibility uh, for what is happening today. And it was largely a result of a decision uh, in April 2006 to make Ukraine and to make Georgia uh, a part of NATO. We were going to integrate uh, Ukraine into NATO come hell or high water. Now, the Russians said at the time that this is categorically unacceptable. Uh, the Russians made it clear that they had swallowed the first two tranches of NATO expansion, the 99 expansion and the 2004 expansion, but Georgia and Ukraine were not going to become part of NATO. Uh, they were drawing a line in the sand. They said this is an existential threat to us. And indeed, in August of that year, of course, August 2008, you had a war involving the Russians and the Georgians over the whole issue of whether or not Georgia would become part of NATO. Uh, now, it's important to understand that when we talk about Western policy and we focus on NATO and expansion of NATO into Ukraine, that actually Western policy had three prongs to it. Uh, the core prong was definitely integrating Ukraine into NATO. 
But the other two prongs were integrating Ukraine into the European Union and turning Ukraine into a pro-Western liberal democracy, in effect, uh, putting in place the Orange Revolution. Uh, and these three prongs of the strategy were all designed to make Ukraine a pro-Western country, a country in the West orbit sitting on Russia's border. And again, the Russians made it unequivocally clear at the time um, that this was not going to happen. Now, the first crisis broke out in February 2014. The way I like to think about this is that you had a major crisis in February 2014, broke out that day. Then you had a major crisis breaking out in December of last year, that's December 2021, and on February 24th of this year, the war started. Now, what about this crisis in February of 2014, February 22nd to be exact? It was precipitated in large part by uh, a coup that was supported by the United States that took place in Ukraine and resulted in a pro-Russian leader, President Yanukovych, being overthrown and being replaced by a pro-American prime minister. Uh, the Russians found this intolerable. Uh, at the same time, they were debating um, with the West and with the Ukrainians over EU expansion. And always in the background at that point in time was NATO expansion. Uh, this blew up and uh, it had two consequences. One is that the Russians, in effect, took Crimea away from Ukraine for themselves. They had no intention of ever letting Sevastopol become a The second thing that happened is that the Russians helped foster a civil war in eastern Ukraine. And of course, that civil war festered well after 2014. But the crisis really blew up in 2014. Then, starting about mid-year, and really heating up at the end of last year, I would say in December 2021, was a second major crisis. And the question is, what caused this crisis? And in my opinion, it was caused largely by the fact that Ukraine was becoming a de facto member of NATO. It's commonplace in the West, especially in Washington these days, to say that Ukraine had nothing to fear regarding, uh, excuse me, the United States had nothing to fear, well, start, Russia had nothing to fear regarding Ukraine becoming part of NATO. And Russia had nothing to fear because NATO was doing nothing to move forward Ukraine's incorporation into NATO. I think in a de jure sense, that's absolutely correct. But in a de facto way, that's wrong. What we were doing was we were arming the Ukrainians. And you want to remember, it's President Trump in December of 2017 who was under great pressure, who decided to arm the Ukrainians. So we were arming the Ukrainians, uh, we were training the Ukrainians, and we were forming ever closer diplomatic ties with the Ukrainians. And this spooked the Russians. It especially spooked the Russians in the summer of last year when 
Ukrainian military used drones against Russian forces in the Donbass region. It especially spooked the Russians last summer when the British drove a destroyer through territorial waters, Russian territorial waters in the Black Sea. It especially spooked the Russians in November uh, when we were flying bombers within 13 miles of the Russian coast. So all these events coupled with this de facto uh, de facto uh, bringing of Ukraine into NATO pushed the Russians to what Sergei Lavrov said was the boiling point. You know, Lavrov was asked in January why the Russians uh, had reached this point uh, and, and why we were in the midst of a crisis. And he said, Lavrov said in January, we had reached our boiling point. First expansion of NATO, second expansion of NATO, and then all of these events associated with Ukraine. The Russians had had it. So you had a crisis of massive proportions, which of course resulted on February 24th in the um, uh, Russians invading Ukraine. And we are now in the midst of a real war. This is not just a civil war in Eastern Ukraine, which is what we had before February 24th. Uh, we now have a real war. So this brings us to the question of what is the conventional wisdom on this subject? And how do I think about the opposing argument? The opposing argument is that this has nothing to do with NATO expansion. It's really quite remarkable. When, when you listen to people in the administration speak, uh, and when you read uh, editorials in, in the Washington Post, uh, words like this are spoken. This has absolutely nothing to do with NATO expansion. I, I don't know how anybody can say that. The Russians have been saying since April, 2008, that this is all about NATO expansion, that NATO expansion into Ukraine is an existential threat to them. But Americans simply refuse to believe that. Not all Americans, but many Americans, and certainly the policy elite in this country. And instead, what they have done is they've created a story that it is not American policy. It's not NATO expansion that's driving this train. Instead, it's Vladimir Putin. And it's the fact that Vladimir Putin is either bent on recreating the Soviet Union or he's interested in creating a greater Russia. But whichever one of those two outcomes you take, he is ultimately an expansionist. He's on the march. And thank God we expanded NATO, because if we hadn't expanded NATO, he'd probably be in Berlin by now, if not Paris. This is the basic argument. Uh, he is an aggressor. There are a number of problems with that argument. First of all, before February 22nd, 2014, nobody was arguing that he was aggressor. Nobody was arguing that NATO expansion was required for the purposes of containing Russia before February 22nd, 2014. Uh, we didn't think he was a problem. And in fact, when the crisis broke out on February 22nd, 2014, we were actually shocked. If you go back and look at the newspapers at the time, the Obama administration was caught with its pants down. Why? Because they didn't think that the Ukraine, excuse me, that the Russians were aggressive. But of course, we had to 
invent the story after the crisis broke out so that we weren't blamed for what happened. We had to blame the Russians. So we created the story. Second reason you want to doubt this is that Putin has never said that he is bent on recreating uh, the Soviet Union, or he's bent on creating a greater Russia. He's never said he was bent on conquering Ukraine and integrating it into Russia. There's no question that in his heart, he thinks that uh, uh, it would be appropriate for Ukraine to be part of Russia. In his heart, he's made it clear he'd love back to bring back the Soviet Union. But he's also explicitly said that in his head, he fully understands that this is a bad idea. So if you look at what he said, there's no reason to think he's bent on recreating the Soviet Union or creating a greater Russia to take this a step further. He doesn't have the capability. He doesn't have the capability for two reasons. First of all, he doesn't have a big enough military this is a country whose gross national product is smaller than Texas's, right? This is not the former Soviet Union in its heyday. Furthermore, the Russians understand that occupying country in, uh, occupying countries or occupying territory in Eastern Europe is a prescription for big trouble. Most of us on this call are old enough to remember the Cold War and all the trouble that the Soviets had Think East Germany, 1953, Hungary, 1956, Czechoslovakia, 1968, constant trouble with the Poles. And one could argue that the Romanians and the Albanians were the biggest pain in the necks they ever faced. The Russians are surely sophisticated enough to know that not only do they not have the capability, but that occupying Ukraine, occupying the Baltic states would be like swallowing a porcupine. This would be crazy. So... I think there's hardly any evidence to support that. And the final point I'd make is if you look at what the Russians are doing militarily in Ukraine at the moment, it does not look like they're bent on conquering the country and occupying it and integrating it into a greater Russia. But anyway, here we are. And I think everybody is very interested in the question of where we go from here. So let me say a few words about that. First of all, let me start with U.S. policy. U.S. policy is to double down. That's what we're going to do. This is what we did after 2014. Instead of reevaluating and saying maybe NATO expansion is not such a good idea, we went in the opposite direction. This is why I'm telling you that by 2021, the Russians understood that we were turning Ukraine into a de facto member of NATO. They understood that. Uh, so what we did after 2014 is double down. And what we're going to do now and what we're doing now is doubling down. And what does that mean? We're encouraging the Ukrainians to resist. We're not going to fight for them. You understand? We're going to fight to the last Ukrainian, but we're not going to do any of the fighting. They're on their own in that regard. But we're going to arm them and do what we can to train them at this late date and hope that they can hang in there uh, and, uh, and duke it out with the Russians. And nobody believes they're going to defeat the Russians, but maybe you'll get a stalemate. Now, the question you have to ask yourself, this is really the key question, is what are the Russians going to do, right? 
it seems to me that a lot of people in the West think that uh, if the Ukrainians provide enough resistance, the Russians will roll over and play dead. Uh, or maybe Vladimir Putin will throw his hands up, he'll surrender, he'll say, this was all a bad idea, uh, I regret doing it. Uh, or maybe there'll be a coup in Moscow, he'll be overthrown, and they'll bring in leaders who will work out a deal with us, and Ukraine will live happily ever after, we will live happily ever after, and the Russians will be chastened. I've spent my entire adult life studying great power politics, I know a lot about great power politics. This is not the way the world works, and it is certainly not the way the Russians work. You want to understand, going back to what I said about the April 2008 decision, the Russians said at the time, this is an existential threat. This is an existential threat, right? So even before the current war, Ukraine, and Ukraine becoming part of NATO was viewed as an existential threat. Now you're talking about a situation where you defeat the Russians in Ukraine. This is a much worse outcome for the Russians than what happened in April 2008, and a much worse outcome than what happened in February 2014. And the Russians are not going to roll over and play dead. In fact, what the Russians are going to do is they're going to crush the Ukrainians. They're going to bring out the big guns. They're going to turn places like Kiev and other cities in Ukraine into rubble. They're going to do Fallujahs. They're going to do Mosul's. They're going to do Grozny's. You know what happened in World War II when the United States was faced with the possibility of having to invade the Japanese home islands in early 1945. The idea of invading the Japanese home islands after what happened at Iwo Jima and then later what happened in Okinawa really spooked us. So you know what we did? We decided to burn Japanese cities to the ground starting on March 10th, 1945. We killed more people the first night we firebombed Tokyo than we killed at either Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And we were systematically burning Japanese cities to the ground. Why? Because we did not want to invade the Japanese main islands. When a great power feels threatened, when it, the Russians are going to pull out all stops in Ukraine to make sure that they win. And then there's the nuclear dimension to this. The Russians have already put their nuclear weapons on high alert. This is a really significant development because what they were doing was sending us a very powerful signal as to how seriously they take this crisis and what's going on. So again, if we start winning and the Russians start losing, you want to understand that what we're talking about doing here is backing a nuclear armed great power that sees what's happening as an existential threat into a corner. This is really dangerous. Go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. I don't think that what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis was as threatening to us as this situation is to the Russians. But if you go back and look at how American decision makers thought at the time, they were scared stiff. They thought that Soviet missiles in Cuba was an existential threat. And they were willing, many of Kennedy's advisors, to use our nuclear arsenal against the Soviet Union. That's how serious 
great powers get when they think they face existential threats. So in my opinion, we are in a very dangerous situation. I think the likelihood of nuclear war is very small, but the likelihood doesn't have to be high for me to be really scared because of the consequences associated with nuclear use. So we better be extremely careful here regarding what we do in terms of pushing the Russians into the corner. But again, I'm not sure that's going to happen because I think what's going to happen here is that in a competition between us and the Russians, the Russians will win. Now you're saying to yourself, why is he saying that? I think that if you uh, think about this, you want to think about who has the greater resolve, right? Who, who really cares more about this situation, the Russians or the Americans? The Americans do not care that much about Ukraine. The Americans have made it clear they are not even willing to fight and die for Ukraine. So it's not that important to us. For the Russians, they have made it clear it's an existential threat. So the balance of resolve, I believe, favors them. So as we walk up the escalation ladder moving forward, my guess, and it's just my guess, is that the Russians will prevail, not the Americans, and the Russians will prevail because the balance of resolve favors them. Now, the question is, who loses this war? Uh, I think it doesn't matter much to the United States if we lose in the sense that the Russians prevail in Ukraine. I think the real losers in this war are the Ukrainians. And I think what's happened here is we have led the Ukrainians down the primrose path. We have pushed very hard to encourage the Ukrainians to want to become part of NATO. We have pushed very hard to make them part of NATO. We have pushed very hard to make them a Western bulwark on Russia's borders, despite the fact the Russians made it clear that this was unacceptable to them. We, in effect, and here I'm talking about the West, we took a stick and we poked the bear in the eye. And as you all know, if you take a stick and you poke a bear in the eye, that bear is probably not going to smile and laugh at what you're doing. That bear is probably going to fight back. And that's exactly what's happening here. And that bear is going to tear apart Ukraine. That bear is in the process of tearing apart Ukraine. And again, we go back to where we started. Who bears responsibility for this? Do the Russians bear responsibility for this? I don't think so. There's no question the Russians are doing the dirty work. I don't want to make light of that fact. But the question is, what caused the Russians to do this? And in my opinion, the answer is very simple. The United States of America. Thank you. And it seems to me, based on what we're seeing 24-7, they will never surrender. And the Russians will be faced with a situation much worse than they faced in Afghanistan. Well, we'll see whether that happens or not. Uh, there's no question that the Ukrainians have agency. I, I don't dispute that. And my view all along is that if the Ukrainians were smart, what they would do is divorce themselves from the United States. Right? They've hitched their wagon to the United States. And your description of how the Ukrainians are behaving today is absolutely correct. And we're encouraging that, right? And uh, as I said in my presentation, the question is, what are the consequences of that? 
you're quite confident that the Russians will lose in Ukraine the way they lost uh, in Afghanistan. I, I would not bet a lot of money on that, but I would note that even if the Russians lose in the process, they will destroy Ukraine. Uh, and from Ukraine's point of view, that's not a good thing. This is why my view is that Ukraine should have long ago divorced itself from the United States and worked out a modus vivendi with Russia. Uh, my view is if you're a reasonably small power in the international system and you live next door to a gorilla, you have to go to great lengths to accommodate that gorilla. And the last thing you want to do is poke that gorilla in the eye because the gorilla will do great damage to you and it probably will never forget. Uh, I don't know if you're old enough to remember uh, when Fidel Castro came to power in 1959, but shortly thereafter, we put sanctions on Fidel Castro and on Cuba. And those sanctions are basically still on Cuba. We've never gotten over the fact that Cuba behaved in ways that we considered to be unacceptable. And I think you have a similar situation here. And my view is, yes, the Ukrainians have agency, but if they were smart, they'd divorce themselves from the United States and uh, try to work out a modus vivendi with Russia. I wanted to raise with, uh, with uh, John Mearsheimer, you ma made some comparisons to uh, Russia's reaction, Ukraine and the US and Cuba, Fidel Castro, um, and uh, how we uh, viewed uh, Cuba and Castro as a threat to our our security interest, an existential threat. And the response, you know, we had the Bay of Pigs, the attempted assassinations of Castro that have out Operation Mongoose. Uh, we even had plans after the failed um, Bay of Pigs to invade. Um, uh, do you think those um, responses of the United States were uh, morally or legally um, legitimate um, responses uh, that, uh, that we made? You know, that were an example that uh, other countries should and can follow, or are they something that ought not to be followed? This is a great question. And of course, it follows on one of your three initial points, as well as Adam Dixon's comments, which have to do with the subject of rights and, and what's morally or legally uh, permissible in the international system. I think that in international politics, states usually pay attention to international law and they pay attention to moral precepts as long as they're in their strategic interests. But if there's a conflict between international law and a country's strategic interests, the country will always privilege its strategic interests and international law and human rights will be pushed off the table. This is why I think it's not very helpful to talk about rights. Uh, when you talk about whether Russia has the right to have a buffer state or Ukraine has the right to have its own foreign policy, these are concepts that, in my opinion, get you into all sorts of trouble. In the international system, might makes right. And the United States would never tolerate a situation where Canada or Mexico invited in a legal way China 
to bring military forces into Toronto or Mexico City. We have a Monroe Doctrine, which is in our strategic interest. And our Monroe Doctrine says no distant great power is allowed to put military forces in the Western Hemisphere, period, end of story. What the Russians are doing here is they're basically articulating their own version of the Monroe Doctrine. They're saying you cannot turn Ukraine into a Western bastion on our border. It has nothing to do with rights, right? It doesn't matter whether Ukraine has the right to do this or that. We're saying they can't do it. Just like we're saying Cuba can't inv invite the Soviets to bring military forces into the Western Hemisphere. So for me, when you talk about great power politics, rights in the final analysis just don't matter. Might makes right. And the United States is a mighty powerful country. It's a mighty powerful country on purpose. And it does whatever it thinks is in its strategic interest. And if the rights say that's okay to do, good. But if the rights are at odds with what's in our strategic interests, we do what's in our strategic interests. But let me, let me offer this, uh, John. Uh, the Declaration of Independence. Um, now, maybe we departed from it, but it certainly spoke in terms of rights. You know, men and women, they're, they're born with unalienable rights. And they also articulates a right and a duty to rise up and throw off a tyrannical government. Now, maybe the Declaration of Independence is quaint, but actually it's what gave birth to this nation you know, that we're residing in right now. Uh, it may well be that as a descriptive matter, uh, we're still living with uh, Thucydides, the strong do what they can, the weak suffer what they must. Uh, and it may well be that uh, as a practical matter, maybe things don't change, but I don't think we should necessarily view as irrelevant, as you're saying, assigning responsibility. Maybe there's in peri delicto. Uh, and responsibility means making a moral judgment, even if the moral judgment has no immediate practical significance. Don't you think the Declaration of Independence is worth uh, admiring and aspiring towards? I think the Declaration of Independence is of enormous importance. I thank my lucky stars I was born in a liberal democracy, right? And I, I think, like you, regret the fact that liberal democracy is, at, is under threat at home. But my view, and I'm probably different than you, Bruce, in this regard, is that international politics is a different domain than domestic politics. And in international politics, the Thucydides uh, way of thinking about the world where might makes right is what applies. I'm not in favor of going around and beating up on other states, and I'm not in favor of wanton violence and so forth and so on. And I do think that what is happening in Ukraine is absolutely horrible. It makes me sick to my stomach. But on the other hand, I think it's very important to understand basic realist logic. And the reason it's important to understand realist logic is because at least in this case, that's what informs Putin. Putin is thinking like And Americans have a terribly difficult time putting themselves in Putin's shoes. And this is because Americans tend to think in terms of rights and in terms of American exceptionalism and all these other ideas that I think get us into trouble. I think, you know, going back to the film clip that Ray put up there where Putin uh, talked about in that New York Times op-ed, 
the trouble America causes by thinking of itself as an exceptional nation is correct. I just don't want to think that way in IR, and I don't want to think about rights when it comes to international relations. Um, Ray, did you want to add your thoughts? Uh, I just wanted to add, Bruce, uh, that uh, John Mearsheimer needs no endorsement from me, uh, but I would simply add that this is, I think, we talk about uh, offensive realism or offensive. Uh, it's offensive to, to think that uh, uh, one should have to deal not so much with rights, but with might uh, when one is judging international relations problems. Um, but realism uh, really needs to be uh, the primary factor here, particularly when, as John pointed out at the beginning of his remarks, it matters, it matters greatly as to how we got here and who bears the primary responsibility. I agree. And sometimes my, my view is that you can have more than one actor be responsible. They say in the law, it's called comparative negligence. The same idea here. Um, and I, to my, and my view is that there isn't any right to buffer state. Why do just big powers get to say, you know, we get to declare we have an existential threat and attack you. Most of the countries in the world have existential threats. We could blow up all of them tomorrow, you know, uh, with the snap of a finger. Yeah, we don't say, OK, well, then they could attack the United States. Anyway, that's for another session here. Does anybody else want to uh, offer? I don't want to cut anybody off. Have any uh, additional questions before we uh, we close the session? The speakers have been marvelous. Every participant, I think, has been wonderful here. I want to congratulate everybody. Uh, but is there any last questions that would like to be asked? Yeah, actually, I, I would like to ask a question. And basically, uh, there are two variables that I'd like to. to uh, first of all, I thought that the talk was was fantastic. But there are two things that I, I wanted to ask about. One was the economic aspects of this. And the other is the political will of the people in Ukraine. So when we talk about might is right, the question I have is uh, Russia is Russia's might is being undermined by the sanctions. And so Putin is now uh, potentially facing uh, a decrease in his war fighting capabilities because of the economic situation. He's also going to lose the support of he may lose the support of the oligarchs and the population at large. And then uh, on the Ukrainian side, you have this will to fight and you've got the potential for a guerrilla war, it seems to me, over long term, uh, if not uh, success uh, in a conventional fashion. So I, I just was curious to get your thoughts about the economic aspects of the situation, plus you know, the, the issue of the political will on the part of the Ukrainians to determine their own destiny, which may include a guerrilla war. Okay, if, I, if I, I could just... get in another, uh, Dr. Mearsheimer, if I could just get another question to piggyback on that. Sure. Uh, I've really been waiting to get this in as well. I think it uh, matches very well with the economic aspects. Um, first of all, thank you for doing this. Uh, unfortunately, in the policy community, as you know today, there really are no voices at all for your point of view. Everything that we're seeing is more sanctions, uh, more punishment. And the question is, if Putin runs into the problems that he may run into in case this insurgency doesn't go his way, his regime will be undermined. If the sanctions are biting enough to have an effect, they're gonna collapse and implode Russia's economy, which would undermine his regime. If he goes back, 
with nothing to show for his misadventure, that will undermine his regime. And my question is, uh, what will his reaction be then? I'm not asking you to prognosticate, but from uh, the standpoint of what you've seen over the last 20 years, is he someone to back down or are we going to see a ratcheting up uh, from his point of view? Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you for the uh, why don't we just to organize it, John, why don't you respond first and then Ray, you chip in and then we're going to call it to a close. Yeah, Th those are two great questions. And uh, I think that the question that it is really on the table here is whether or not with sanctions and the costs of war, just the cost of losing people and fighting in Ukraine, that coupled with economic sanctions can uh, inflict enough punishment on the Russian people and the oligarchs that they rise up against Putin, right? Th this, is, this is the question. And I think there are two reasons that's not going to happen. I I'm not saying I'm right, you're wrong, but I, I think that what the scenario that you two described will not prove to be correct. And let me tell you why. The first is nationalism. States are able to sustain huge amounts of punishment and the population does not rise up against the ruler. You wanna think about what we did to Japan in World War II. You wanna think about what we did to Germany. You want to think about the literature on sanctions, economic sanctions. Look at Iran. It's amazing what we've done to Iran. Look at Cuba. There have been sanctions on Cuba forever, right? And these countries don't throw up their hands. So the first point I would make to you is nationalism is a very powerful force. And I think that the Russian people will rally around Putin. Second point I would make to you is, as a result of this, uh, uh, this talk that I gave that's ricocheting all over the internet, plus the New Yorker piece, I get, I get like a thousand emails every day. I can't even open up all the emails I get. But I've gotten a number of emails from Russians. These are educated people uh, who are not hostile to me in any way. And I read those emails to say that you want to understand that you Americans are threatening Mother Russia. And what's going on here is not simply a case of Putin misbehaving and us liking the Americans. And what's going to happen here is we're going to overthrow Putin. The emails I'm getting, and this is not a scientific sample, but it is consistent with my general point about nationalism is that the more we push against the Russians in Ukraine and the more we threaten the regime, the more that people will rally around Putin. Now, again, I could be proved wrong on that, but my bet is that he'll be able to withstand the sanctions. And by the way, this gets to Ray's point. Ray's point is the Chinese are going to help him. We know the Indians are going to help them. We've heard that the Mexicans are going to help them. So it's not clear that we'll be able to punish them that much over the long term. But then again, even if we do punish them, do you think that's going to bring the Russian people to their knees or Putin to his knees? 
I wouldn't bet a lot of money on that. Ray, you've got closing Thanks. argument. Well, I would like to identify myself with what John just said. Uh, but let's posit, in other words, I think the Russians will get through this. I think there are a lot of reasons that they will. Um, let's posit that Putin does have his back up against the wall. I think it was Jack Matlock, my friend Jack, who suggested you're not quite sure of Putin's relative stability now. It's a legitimate question. I was surprised as hell that he invaded Ukraine, even with Chinese support, even under threat of all kinds of other things, sanctions. But he did. And so, and he sounds a little bit more emotional than I've ever heard, heard him sound before. So will it be a good thing if Putin's back is up against the wall? I don't think so. And this is why. <clears throat> He gratuitously, for the first time in my experience, and that goes back about 60 years, <clears throat> raised the, nu the nuclear possibility. <clears throat> that is big, okay? That means that he would consider implying that if he really had his back against the wall. Now, what does he look at? What does he see when he looks at uh, the United States? He sees what Ted Polstel has just explained to us. He sees that he doesn't have global dominance, so the, the global awareness to find out what's being shot at him and when. He also sees people like Admiral Thomas Richards, head of SAC, now called Stratfor, who says, you know, we might, we might have to, yeah, we might have to use nuclear weapons. He says he sees people like uh, what's his name that little guy uh, Stavridis. Yeah, he says Stavridis, another admiral. Yeah, we're going to be in a nuclear war with with China in, in ten years. That's what Putin sees, and so the the reason this thing is so labile, as the Germans would put it, so tentative and so dangerous, is because these people need to keep their mouths shut, and he would. What Putin would like is to Biden shut these guys up and say, look, no one wins in a nuclear war. I signed that thing with, with Putin, he agrees. So we're not even gonna talk about that. And yet here we have Putin talking about it. So it's a matter of Putin's stability and what having his back up against the wall, I don't think it's gonna happen because of the sanctions. What that would mean, that would not be good news in my view. Well, thank you so much, uh, John, Ray, audience. You've all been wonderful. Sorry right. I have to do a close, but uh, we'll see you on the next uh, Zoom meeting. But uh, you both have set a standard to which the wise and honest may repair, and we thank you for that. All right. Okay, bye, everybody. Bravo. Thank you. Thank you, folks. Thank you, Bruce. Bravo. All right. Thanks, thank John. Bye-bye, All right. Thank you. Good job. Thank you. Way to go, Ray.